Hey, this is Dave Broadbeck. I'm your instructor. Unless you're not just listening to this for fun because you're some kind of person who listens to university lectures for fun. I was going to insult you. I decided against it. So person who's listening to this for fun, I'm not going to insult you. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, I'm Dave Broadbeck here at Algoma University, and you're about to listen to a lecture from uh, the fall 2023 term of Psychology 3106, Animal Behavior. It's what the cool kids study in school. Sorry, I didn't mean to yell there. Hope you enjoy it. And if you don't, well, I still get paid, so I don't really care. Hey, Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How I have cleverly entitled this one Brain and Behavior, which is the old name of Site 2606. Um, some of these slides, if you took 2606 or are taking it, you've seen before, and some of them you will have not seen before. Uh, that's the brain from Pinky and the Brain. And these are two pictures from the worst episode of Star Trek ever, Spock's brain. The best part of that whole episode, and Star Trek is pretty progressive generally, right? It's like when people go, when did Star Trek get woke? 1966. Uh, but this woman has a kid. Spock's brain gets stolen. Spoilers! It's from 1968. Spock's brain gets stolen. And then what happens is they go down to the planet, and she's there, and she took his brain. because Well, she came to the ship. It doesn't matter. Captain Kirk literally looks at her and says, where are the leaders? Where are the men? <laughs> and that is fascinating. Anyway, let's talk a bit about brains. Uh, behaviors you have for the nervous system. Duh. I think we all kind of accept that. And evolution acts on the phenotype. That's the behavior, right? It can't act on the genotype directly. It can only act on the phenotype. And behavior, and if behavior is the output of the brain, evolution acts on the brain. I don't think I really have to lay this out for the people in this room, but I'm just making the point that if it is affecting behavior, if it's, then it's also going to affect the brain, because that's where behavior comes from, the nervous system. So I don't know why I have that there, that, that slide. I, I think I have that there to remind me, not so much to remind you. So basically, the nervous system, cognitive systems must have evolved so we can look at them and see how they drive behavior. Here's some terms, you probably know all these, but I'm just gonna quickly go through them. A neuron is just a brain cell. For our purposes in here, that's fine. If you're taking 2606, you found it this morning, there's not just one kind of neuron. Action potential is when a neuron fires. Again, I'm sure you know that. An interneuron, most of the neurons in your, your nervous system, no matter what you are, are interneurons. There's some sensory neurons that detect the outside and some motor neurons that cause movement. Sensory neurons, there you go, and motor neurons. So sensory neurons turn the world into neural energy. Interneurons are connections. And then motor neurons are for movement, right? And again, I know you can get way more complicated than this, and I did get way more complicated than this about three and a half hours ago, but not for our purposes in here. We could talk about receptors. So cells have receptors. Not to worry so much about the cells themselves. We're going to worry about receptor cells. So there's sensory. It's just another name for a sensory neuron. Okay. So those are just terms that you're going to hear come up. 
I'm pretty sure you all know them, but does anybody want me to quickly go over any of these again? Because I can, not like it's complicated. I shouldn't ever say that. It's not like it's complicated. Now you're going to be afraid to ask a question. I do that all the time and I shouldn't do it. And as my mouth, like as my lips are moving, I'm saying that, oh, that's kind of discouraging from speaking. That's not the point you're trying to make. I do it the whole time and I feel bad. But that's like when I say, you learned this in grade four. And he goes, I do that a lot in statistics, and I try not to. It's like, yeah, you, you, you know, remember when grade eight math, everybody kind of looks at me like this? Okay. <laughs> Does anybody remember what a logarithm is? Everybody goes, they never told us that. No, they told you that. We forgot. All right. Can you go over action potential? Yeah, and action potential, just wait. For our purposes in this course, 2606, get way more complicated than this. But for in this course, all that means is the neuron has fired. Okay. Neurons are either off or on. And that's when they're on, is when an action potential's happened. Yeah, for our purposes, that's fine. Thank you. Yeah. Others? I was kind of doing a Vanna White on Wheel of Fortune thing there. Did you like that? Look at this studio filled with glamorous prizes. Okay. We're going to go right into examples because I think it's, well, frankly, we don't have to worry about too much of the neuroscience stuff. And frankly, uh, there's some great examples here. A lot of cool data, and of course, you knew I would start with moths and bats, if anybody knows. Who here has not heard me talk about moths and bats? Okay, couple, wow! I thought everybody in the world had heard me talk about moths and bats. A lot of birds, but... Uh, well, oh, oh, you're gonna get some birds. Uh, <laughs> don't you worry. But, the moths and bats is my favorite science thing. And in fact, you can just see, this is just a graph how many times it's been cited over the I'm not the only person, is what I'm saying. I didn't just pick this out of some obscure journal and say, I'm gonna talk about this in every class I teach. Uh, this is really a cool thing. It does get cited. Okay, so let's talk about it. So there's a, that's a nuctoid moth. And this kind of moth has uh, basically a two neuron ear. And they're called A1 and A2. Why are they called that? I don't know. I guess they could have called them Steve and Eddie, but they thought A1 and A2 were better names. I ever discovered something, I'm just gonna call it Eddie. Just to see if I can get that, you know, out there. So, this is what it looks like, right? So, here's like a tympanum, it's a, it's a, it's a nimbro. And then there's these air sacs. So this is the side, of, this is the animal, this is the world, this is inside the animal. This thing vibrates, and it causes, as you can see, it's connected directly to these receptor cells, these two cells, A1 and A2, okay? A1 and A2, actually. These cells aren't frequency sensitive at all. So they, if they're not frequency sensitive, they don't change how they fire based on the pitch. So not low or high. They don't, base, they don't fire based on that. But they don't respond to certain low frequencies. And by low, by the way, I don't mean low like, like for us, what, what's human hearing, what? 20 to 20,000 hertz, right? 20 hertz is really low. And 20,000 is extremely high. Most of you likely don't hear at either of those. You're probably somewhere around 40 and 16,000. I'm probably somewhere around 110,000, right? It's just because we live 
in Western industrialized society and we wear AirPods and shit like that. Like it's just bad for your ears. And I don't, I don't, that, that, you know, protect your hearing by turning down, oh, fucking way, turning it up, because I'm an idiot. Aren't we all? Oh yeah, we're all idiots. <laughs> yeah, short term, yeah, while I'm going, yeah, well maybe I'll go buy some cigarettes as well, they feel good. I don't do that anymore, it's been a long time. Um, so in this case, for us, low frequency would be say below 20. A low frequency for a moth is below 100,000 hertz. That's, you can't hear that, it's too light for you. Um, so anything below about 100,000 hertz, they are hearing. So here's a schematic diagram. Um, you can see what happens here. This is not, this is like the diagram of the neural network. Don't worry about that. The important thing is here. We've got an ear and it's hooked up to a muscle. And that ear is actually almost basically directly hooked up to the muscle. Okay? So these would be, see these are interneurons here. They're actually, and these are different ganglia. Um, invertebrates have weird nervous systems that we're not used to because we're vertebrates. So you can see there's a brain here, but there's all these other ganglia that are the size of brains. But the important point is, the neuron itself is hooked up to the muscle on the opposite side. You see that? Okay. So now, what Rader did, the guy that did this work back in the 50s, which is kind of cool, because it's just cool that somebody did this, you know, before any of us in here were born. Pre-Mad Men, there's always a Mad Men reference. Always. So what he does is he takes uh, these neurons, puts a microelectrode across and just measures. Does it fire or not? And when you hear firing, what happens is you just hear in a little amplifier, you hear a little click. You hear like that. It's just a little click on it. Uh, nowadays it's on the computer. But, uh, back then you would have an amplifier and you have a little pen and a piece of rolling paper, okay? Not a, not a rolling paper, that's an entirely different thing, but a piece of paper on a roll. <laughs> Two different things, thank you. Two different things. Funny now with weed being legal, I can make weed references without anybody going, that's offensive. Sure. Nope, nobody did before, but when I used to tell the stories of my misspent youth in neuropharmacology, you know, you know, like this story, and then I was completely covered in chicken fat because we had a whole chicken in 90 seconds. Anyway, take neuropharmacology next term, all about it. So, the A1 neuron is respon responsive to intensity because the, see what's happening here? The higher this is here, that's the louder the sound is. That's intensity. And you see what happens here? Very little firing, more firing, more, fi oh, and in fact seems to, let's see, the more firing, uh, the, the louder the sound, the more firing. It seems like it's proportional. It actually is proportional. That's cool. So there's more firing than with the bat being closer, because these are bat sounds. It's detecting bat sonar. That's why it's at 100, that sonar is at about 116,000 hertz. Pretty, pretty high, you can't hear that. So what it's doing is it's detecting that. And it's just, it's sonar, it's the same way that, and it bounces off, it's at, with what they call in the Navy, active sonar. Right? Like in the, you know, in, 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 you see Hunt for Red October? In submarine movie with Sean Connery playing a Lithuanian? but he speaks like a Scottish guy and everybody's cool with it because it's Sean Connery. But yeah, so that's just, I love that one. 
when my, when my daughter, when my wife was pregnant with my daughter, I actually sent the sonogram technician, I said, uh, give me one ping, Vasily, one ping only. And my wife thought that, she said, you can't say that with the next kid. So then I said, are there any sonar contracts, Mr. Kamenov? Which technically, see, I was right. I'm a real peach to live with. Um, just lovely. Because yeah. that's, yeah, the best thing you want to do with your spouse is kind of lawyery win arguments. I didn't technically say it, I'm going to do that. It's great. I love that you live with it. It's perfect. So, the cool thing about that says that this is, this, why was it bad? It was louder because it makes it, it's closer. It's closer, right? It must be closer. This single neuron is actually encoding how far away that bat is. Dude. A2, as you can see here, only fires when the sound's really loud. See, very little, very little. Oh, lots. So if A2 fires, the bat is really is right beside you. A1 is literally encoding how far away the bat is. Is the, is the moth aware of this? Well, no, they're freaking moths. This is a, it's a machine. Well, these are machines too, they're just a little complicated. Okay, do you understand this so far? You good? And A2 is like saying, A2 is almost like an alarm. It's like, oh my God, there's a bat right beside me. So, yeah. A1 responds to the intensity of the sound. Yes. And then A2 responds to how loud or quiet it is. No, the intensity is loud or quiet. Okay. A2 only responds when it's really loud. Okay. So they must be the bat must be right beside. Okay. Or I probably mostly her actually. All right. So here's what happens. Uh, that should say that wing, the other, the opposite wing. A1, if A1 on the left fires, the wing on the opposite side, I don't know if I had that the wrong way, would beat. And you think, wait a second, wouldn't that just bring the moth closer to the bat? Except that this one's flapping too. All that's going to do is turn it around until it's an equal intensity and then it flies away. What the moth's course is doing is correcting 180 degrees away from that. And it's doing that with two, well, I'm sorry, four, because it's on both sides, even moths here in stereo. Uh, so you have four neurons, four sensory neurons. You could build this neural network with parts you would buy at, you know, Radio Shack or whatever. I'm sorry, The Source by Circuit City. They, they changed their name. I saw this ad the other day that said, The Source, Canada's biggest tech retailer. And I thought, really? Wouldn't it be Best Buy? I don't know. It doesn't bother me. Actually, see, things like that actually do bother me. And then I go down Wikipedia rabbit holes trying to find the market cap of different companies. Like, it's, it's sad. Again, I'm a real peach to live with. So, this is cool. What does A2 do? A2 actually turns off inhibition in the moth nervous system. A lot of what your nervous system is doing is inhibition. A lot of it. Any U being any M. Because think about this. If you are, this example I usually use is if, if, if you are, if you bump into somebody and they've been drinking, you know, you first get to a party or go to a bar and you bump into somebody and, they, and they've been drinking and you haven't yet, but your first response is, sorry about that. 
And they're more likely, though most people would still say, oh, sorry, but it's a little more likely for them to say, what's your problem? <laughs> you're like, sorry, dude. Okay, I'll be over here. Because the inhibition has been turned off in their nervous system by the alcohol. This is a reason people make stupid decisions with alcohol. It turns off inhibitions. So people get in fights. People have sex with people who they aren't married to. Which is fine if you're, unless you're married, then it's bad. I mean, look, unless you have a different lifestyle, that's fine. I'm not judging anybody. This is why, for example, you ever sit in a bar, a quiet bar by yourself? Not being about by yourself, because that sounds kind of pathetic and kind of like you're a drunk. But if you've ever been out somewhere, maybe if you ever go to a hotel and there's nothing to do when you go to a hotel bar, because that's the only thing you do at a hotel. It's either that or you watch the shitty TV. And you go, gee, I wonder when Jeopardy's on in this time zone. Like, there's, there's not a whole lot to do. But at the bar. And the weird thing is, if there's a guy sitting there by himself and you sit even remotely close to him, he's going to come over to you and tell you his life story. Because he's been drinking. And he's got nothing else to do. So then when I cheated on my wife, and you're like, dude, I've known you for 40 seconds. Very kind of you to buy me a drink, but get away from me. But keep buying me drinks. So what happens here is the wings just go like crazy. Now the bat can't predict where the bot's going to go because the wings are going to eat randomly. Evolution rocks. So a two-neuron ear encodes where a predator is in three-dimensional space. And then plots a course using vector mathematics, which should be described using vector mathematics. And that's moth. <laughs> and it doesn't know it's doing this. Wild, right? So this is sort of, like I said, my favorite thing of these, uh, favorite sort of neural evolutionary stuff about neurons, because it shows us that very simple systems can look extremely complicated. This behavior looks cognitive, right? It looks, the animal's doing, it's not really doing, the nervous system is doing vector mathematics in a three-dimensional space. That's awesome. It doesn't know it's doing it, but it is doing it. It is doing it. Okay. Let's change course a bit and talk a bit about feature detectors. So Hubel and Weasel in 1978, is it 78 I think? They, they found these cells that fired with different line orientations presented to a cat and they won a little thing called the Nobel Prize for this. I once got a, a reprint request from David Hubel and it's like one of my favorite things ever. Used to be when you publish articles, now what happens is they send you an email and you email them back the PDF. Used to you'd get a couple of hundred copies and then people would ask you for them and you mailed them. And I got one once from David Kubel and it was just like, you want to read something I wrote and you won a Nobel Prize. Well, that's it, I quit. I have peaked at 26. That's what happened. That's amazing. Ah, he had a secretary. I don't think he actually probably ever read it. I think he probably had a thing set up and he had probably had a whole team of people, and he had somebody go through journals going, memory, yeah, we'll take that one. <laughs> you know. It's it was pretty cool though when I got it. Where I showed my PhD advisor, I said, yes, do you think that's who that says that is? And she's like, well, who else would it be? You think people are faking being David Hubel? 
to like mess with you. You know, she could have thrown in what gives you the ego, which is I think the subtext there. Uh, so cells in the cortex respond to different line orientations. This is in cats. So they would show a line, and then you get different amounts of firing. And you can see here this when the when the when the, when the uh, stimulus is like this, lots of firing. Straight up and down a little less, exactly the opposite, hardly any. These were detected, these feature detectors happen in the um, uh, occipital lobe, such as it is of cats. There they are. This guy's won a Nobel Prize. And I've had, oh, I was given my master's degree when I graduated by a guy who just won the Nobel Prize in physics. That was cool. I mean, he just handed it to me. It wasn't like he said, you know, I couldn't have done without you. It wasn't anything like that. But it was cool. So is this how we recognize objects? We being any animal. And I think, yeah, it's probably networks of these things. Because if I can figure out a bunch of line orientations, it's a short trip from a square to a head. Right? So that's cats. And that's almost certainly in every mammal. Now, Dave Parrott, and wait for it, that's Dave Parrott in about 1986. <clears throat> University of Sanders. Um, yes, he's wearing silver pants in that picture, because why not? He's the reason I'm here. And he doesn't know that, because I mean, I, we've met once, once. He was giving a talk in 1987 at Western, and I was a third-year student, and I was working in a lab. It was the summer, and I saw this sign, and it said that it was from this guy, this guy from the University of St. Andrews, which is, you know, at Scotland, ancient university. And it, after his name, it said FRS, which means Fellow of the Royal Society, which you don't get to join that unless they ask you. You know, Darwin was an FRS. Uh, Newton was an FRS. My PhD advisor Most people aren't. <laughs> so I see this thing, I see this little poster, and it said that David, Dr. David Parrott, FRS, University of St. Andrews, is going to talk about feature detectors and monkeys. And I thought, well, I got to go to that. That sounds like a good talk. So I go and I expect an older guy. It's a guy who's like young, probably 35 at the time. He comes in, and he's, you got to remember, it's 1987. He's wearing boots up to his knees that had chains hanging off of him, and oddly enough, so was I. Uh, he had on purple skin-tight pants, a green mohawk that was about a foot and a half tall, and a black leather jacket. And he walked in and he got, right, we're going to talk about single-cell recording and some monkeys. And I was like, OK. There's no dress code in this job. <laughs> I like this job. So literally, one of the reasons I went on is because of seeing this talk. What Dave found is that monkeys have cells in their cortex that respond to individual monkeys. Yes, that's really cool. Because after Hugo and Weasel came out with the stuff about feature detectors and said, oh, there's probably just cells that you take these feature detectors together, like, and if you've taken 2606 with me, you know, one of my running examples is having, uh, let's see, we've got cells that respond to all these line orientations, and if all these fire at the same time, we saw a triangle, right? So that's fine, and that's almost certainly how it works. But then people said, well, fine. Then 
we didn't accept this, people would say, oh yeah, <laughs> you think widows are a grandmother cell? And he's like, yeah, there is, almost certainly a grandmother cell. So the grandmother cell idea is, was done to, to disparage the idea that there are these networks of neurons um, that detect individuals and they're almost severe. When these, these neurons and these monkeys only fire under certain conditions, one of those conditions would be seeing a, a given monkey. So when it sees Steve the monkey, it does fire, or it sees Eddie the monkey, it doesn't fire. Yep? What is a grandmother cell? It's just, it's a, the idea is the cell that fires when you see your grandmother. Oh. So that's how you recognize your grandmother. And it's the same idea as this. Okay. Except there's a lot, I'm assuming your grandmother has more characteristics no, than, than three lines. Yeah. <laughs> It's a hierarchical network. It's the, we, I've talked, I talked about this in um, 2606, the idea of, the, of Hewling Jackson's principles, the idea of hierarchical and parallel. That's not as important for this. The important thing here is that animals recognize objects because individual cells fire, say that's that object. It's pretty cool. And that object can be something complicated like another animal. Okay. So the hippocampus, as I say here, is everybody's playground. And what I mean by that is it is researched a lot to the point, in fact, where um, there's a journal called Hippocampus. And a friend of mine actually has a t-shirt that says that. It says in very small print, it says the hippocampus, everybody's playground, and then it just has a fade wave. It's one of those really niche t-shirt jokes. <laughs> like, very few people get it, but those who get it are like, that's great. So, Dave Bolton and Dave Samuelson in 1976 came out with this piece of gear called the radial maze. So the radial maze, it has eight arms that, that radiate out with the spokes of a wheel. He said, literally, lifting up the phrase from their paper. Um, and you can put any animal on this, a school rats usually. There's food at the end of the arms. What's the rat's task? The rat's task is to go to the end and get the food. Oh, and what do rats do? They don't do, well, how would you solve this? I'd start to pop and go all around. That's what I do. That's not what rats do. Rats go in what seems like a semi-random kind of fashion, but they don't make mistakes. Like they don't go back to the same one twice kind of thing? No, no. In their first seven, eight choices, seven would be right, very typically. And that's like after doing it three times. Like they're good at this. Part of that is, this piece of equipment's taking advantage of the fact that rats live in burrows underground with pumps. Like you're, you're actually taking advantage of the rat's ecology and designing a piece of gear. So when this came out, by the way, this, you think 76, a long time ago, yeah, except that this is one of the most important pieces of equipment invented in experimental psychology, like comparative psychology at least, in the last, like, it's up there with the Skinner box. That's how important it is. I mean, that's a fair, that's a fair statement. So, let's say that we put uh, food, oh, here, we can draw one up here. I guess I should have brought my little pencil, but I'm not going back to my office now. Oh, we got our no, network there, so let's just use here. So, draw maze here. 
There's your radial maze, and we're gonna we're gonna bait four arms. This one, this one. I'm just gonna pick four here, and uh, that one. So the rat learns that those four arms are bait. It learns that very quickly, and it doesn't. It only goes down those four arms. It doesn't go down the others. If it goes down one of the other arms, one of these unbaited arms, we call that a reference memory error. Reference memory. Reference memory are the rules of the game. And one of the rules here is these arms are baited and these ones aren't. And then there's working memory, which is within a trial, like within a session of doing this, do you go down an arm you've already been down today? You got a question, Elizabeth? Looks like, no, or are you just sorry. playing with your hair or something? Okay, good. So, does everybody see the distinction? One of them is you're going down an arm that should never have food. The other one is you're going down an arm that you were just down. Those, there's your distinction. Working versus reference memory. Hippocampal lesions affect working memory. But the reference memory. So I teach, so let's, I take a rat, train him up on this, takes about a week and he's great at it. Like he doesn't make many mistakes. Then I, Take him and I anesthetize him and I pull out a rat atlas. It's a rat, it's an atlas in his brain. I have I went my office and I put him in a stereotactic and I open up his head and I go down into it and I run some current through his hippocampus, which destroys it. That's one way to do it. I could go down in there and just miss random rat brains are very tiny. Or you could use chemical lesions, so you go in and you just basically destroy it with a, some. What do they usually use? I can't re remember actually, but some chemical agent that destroys it. Let him recover. And then when he goes to run again, he's fine. He doesn't, he remembers. He goes only down these arms, but he keeps making mistakes going back down them. He makes working memory errors, but not reference memory errors. And those of you who've taken memory should think yourself that reminds me of like HM. Uh, there's a reason for that. <laughs> it's because it's hippocampus. So what's happening here is we now know that hippocampus in non-humans, at least, well, in rats in particular, but we can probably expand that, um, controls working memory, but not reference memory. They make working memory errors, not reference memory errors. By the way, this is the same thing with the Morris water maze. The Morris water maze, strangely enough, is not a maze. It's actually a pool. It's about that big around, a meter, but that deep. So what's that, 10 centimeters deep? Yeah. And what you do is you put, you, you put the rat in it, and there's something, you know what rats don't like doing? Swimming. They can swim. They just don't like it, just like cats. Right? If you threw a cat in the St. Mary's River, I'm not pleased don't do that. But if you did, you're not gonna kill it. I mean, unless you try really hard. Again, these are jokes. I'm not suggesting you hurt anything. But I, I thought I had a joke there and I had nothing. I thought I had something, but it's gone. Take a rat, you will learn to swim. They know how to swim. They can do it. So you take the rat, you put it in that thing, they immediately start swimming but you have one little platform inside the, it's, it's like maybe half a centimeter below 
the level of the liquid, and the rat learns very quickly where that is. And you're thinking, well, can't you see it? Not if you fill the thing with skim milk. You with water, you'll see it. Not with skim milk, you won't. Skim milk is the only use for skim milk. Skim milk isn't food. It's up there with margarine. It's just crap you shouldn't have anywhere near your body. Drink some real milk, little little. Butter. Margarine? Margarine's gross. Let's just pour some vegetable oil in your toast. I'm just dipping this in some Crisco, Mom. Um, anyway, I had a thing about skin building things was. Rat learns this very quickly. As you'd expect, they don't like swimming, they don't like being wet, and they got easy memories. <laughs> you can't do that. Like, same sort of thing. If we, once they've learned where the platform is and we lesion hippocampus, um, they can still remember where the platform is. However, we can do a working memory version of this, which is today, I'm going to move the platform every day, and then you take them out, and you put them back in, and you put them right back to the platform where you just put it. If you do that with one that's lesion, he's screwed. He just swims around and hopes. Okay. So in fact, how does this work? Well, Keith and Nadell, hey, look, more people who've won Nobel Prizes wrote a book in 1978 called The Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map. So by the way, you can get that book for free if you want to read it, because um, they kind of got screwed on the book contract, so they didn't read the copyright, which <laughs> I think is awesome. So you, anybody, if you just look, look that up, you can, I mean, it's end date. But it's fun to read, because they found cells in hippocampus that only fire when a rat is in a certain place or not. Right, which I just literally said right there. The world probably isn't so simple that we just have a map in our hippocampus, and I say us, the idiot, that is like a map, but it's a decent analogy. So the world isn't quite that simple. If only it were so. But there are these place cells. They're, they're a thing. Okay. All right, questions so far? You good? All right. Yeah, I told you, you knew there'd be birds. And I know you know that parrots, corvids, and cichids, that's uh, uh, chickies and titbice, that's crows and nutcrackers, and that's nuthatches. They store food, and they recover hours or days later for future consumption. By the way, that paper, the one about Olton Samuelson that the radio maze, it is so often cited that I bet anybody in my field can tell you the whole citation for, by heart. Right? So it's Olton DS and Samuelson D, 1976, Remembrance of Places Past, Spatial Memory uh, on the, in the Rat on the AR Radio Maze, Sort of Psychology and Behavior Process, Volume 1, pages 15 to 45. I think that's right. Because you cite it all the time. It's like, you're going to do anything with spatial memory? You're going to cite Olden Samuelson. So most songbirds leave for the winter. We've talked about this, but some stay around. And they live, they, they get through the winter by uh, recovering stored food. And as I've mentioned many times already, without this, they literally die. Like, they, they will die in half an hour. A chickadee, a chickadee at least. Clark's not probably a little different. Animal, but a chicken will die if it doesn't have like a piece of the size of a 
sunflower seed 30 minutes after it wakes up. So there are some interesting cognitive difference, differences to go along that we'll continue to discuss, I think, throughout the course will come up. Um, partly because it's a good story, but also as it says there, partly to feed my ego. Uh, but let's talk about some of this work that's been done over the years. So that's a black cap chicken. You've seen those around, right? Those, those guys? That's the chickadee call. Well, that's right, it's the song. And the call is chickadee. The springs here is the, is the song. That could be a black cap chickadee. That might be a, a, a marsh tenant. They're just English chickadees. It's like chickadee, dee, dee. Like they're, they're very, they're basically the same animal. Uh, that's Clark's Nutcracker. That's my PhD advisor, uh, that's Sarah Shuttleworth. Uh, that's probably like 25, 30 years ago because she's, well, she's 80 now. It's not an 80 year old woman. That's John Krebs, uh, Baron Sir John. He's that important. He worked at Oxford University. He's that important that he's literally a lord. He's the Baron of Wedham Wood. He's a lord in the House of Lords in the British Parliament. And he's a guy I just know, which is weird to me. I know a guy who's a sir. And I had to email him. She wanted a award, and he helped me and a couple other people put the package together for her to win. So I wanted to tell him. And I thought, uh, how do I address him? Like, do I just email your John? Because I know him. I've known him, Jesus, since I was in grad school. Do I, your Sir John, because that's, and also, he's the principal of one of the colleges of Oxford University. He's the principal of Jesus College. His email address is principal at Jesus. <laughs> and it's like, you know, that's way above my pay grade. So I just went with, hey, John, and we're okay. His dad discovered the Krebs cycle. You know, the thing that won his dad a Nobel Prize. As I said to him once, if my dad won a Nobel Prize in biology, I never would have gone into biology. I would have become a race car driver. And that's the Advanced Facility for Avian Research at Western uh, in London, Ontario. And let's look. I'm trying to find, where the hell is she? My daughter is there. There's a building at Western that's as big as our, the CC building, and all they do is bird research. They've got a wind tunnel for birds. They've got a bird MRI. I don't have any of those things, that's all I'm saying. So let's talk a bit about this. So Dave Sherry uh, and John Krebs as well, they figured that hippocampal volume when corrected for body weight it's larger in food stores than non-stores. We know that hippocampus is important in memory, spatial memory. So that makes some sense. And then with corvids, that's crows, nutcrackers. Al Camel's group found the same thing. You heard me talk about Al last time. So here's a couple of graphs. Uh, this is hippocampal volume, and this is telencephalon volume. This is just uh, basically brain volume. These are non-stores and these are stores. You can see which is which. And if you want to make this graph a little bit clearer, here we go. 
Okay, so they have a bigger hippocampus than you'd expect. Oh, and if you're interested, that's the hippocampus right there. So, uh, that's a chicken. That's parahippocampus, that's hippocampus. And for the life of me, I don't know what that's called. <laughs> so the way, yeah, you find out, you've got to measure this. And you also have to count how many neurons there are, because there's also more neurons for, for dense. And the way you do this is you hire someone in first year and you tell them to count them. At least that's how you used to do it. Now what you do is you have a piece of software that just takes a picture and figures it out. But it used to be they literally would hire a first year student and say, you can count, right? Okay, start counting. <laughs> and they just count. So if hippocampal volume is bigger in stores than non-stores, maybe it would be the case that if you depend more on stored food, you should have a bigger hippocampus. Well, that's what we got here. This is Hampton Sherry, so buddy of mine, my buddy Rob, Dave Sherry, who my daughter's PhD advisor, Sarah Sherwood, that's my PhD advisor, and then there's these two guys, Kurgle and Ivy, I don't know who they are. Sounds like a name of a law firm. Hampton Sherry showed up with Kurgle and Ivy. Has this ever happened to you? So let's look at the uh, number of caches, that's that food storing episode, or the mean number. You can see that basically the black cat chickadee makes more caches than a Mexican chickadee, or a bridal tip, is it a bridal or a tuff? Bridal tip, uh, tip most. Okay, now let's take a look at how big their hippocampus, oh, look who has the bigger hippocampus, the black cat chickadee, because black cat chickadee relies more on stored food. Okay, this makes a lot of sense, right? It really follows. And in fact, it turns out, if you take what Dave Sherry and uh, Tony Vaccarino did in 1989, a long time ago, was they took some chickadees, let the birds store food, and then you take the birds, and with half the birds, you leash the hippocampus. And the other half, you don't, they're sham, you, you put them under and everything and it's a sham operation, okay? They still search for food. So it didn't stop them from the, doing the other part of the food storing thing, which is retrieval. They just couldn't find where they hid them. <laughs> so the way you do these experiments, these aviary experiments um, in a lab is you, you build trees, they aren't really trees, they tend to be four by fours with, with just holes drilled in them and little perches put into a four by four. So they couldn't find their caches, and you can see it here. So this yellow is uh, visits to cache sites um, that are empty, basically. And green is visits, visits to cache sites that have food in them. And obviously, before that, these are mistakes, the yellows. They don't eat very many. You see what happens here, these hippocampal lesions, they don't, they don't find any. They don't find ones. They're, they're, they're searching at the, how do I want to do this? They're searching in the baited places, the places where they stored food, just as much as they're searching in places where they didn't store food. They still search. They're still good at it. They can't find it. Do they ever get close or is it they, I, There's no data like that that I saw, so I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good question. 
Oh, sorry, I, I didn't realize your hand was up. Okay. Um, this isn't like food storing related, so I'm not sure if it like matters. Well, then it doesn't matter at all to me. Okay, what about like, I don't know what they're called, but like birds that like take nests, like other people's nests? Yeah, cowbirds. Nests. Cowbirds do that, sure. So cuckoos, yeah. Would their hippocampus be like different because they yeah. have to remember where yeah. the free nests are? Yeah. Yeah. And if you lesion their hippocampus, would they not be able to like figure out? Yeah. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what would happen. You are not wrong. Do I have to have some cowbird stuff a little later? Look at this. These, this state is cool because this shows what, what Barney and Narbaum did a while ago is they caught chickens at different times of year. See? December all the way to October. And then they basically they cut their heads off because that's how you kill them. And uh, that's not. Anyway, after they've done a thing that you have to do, they cut their heads off, take out the brain, and they slice it. Okay? Um, and then they counted the number of neurons in the hippocampus. And you can see here the hippocampal volume gets bigger in the winter and then it gets slowest in the summer. They don't rely on store food in the summer. You know, a lot of. In a lot of songbirds, there's a part of the brain, uh, what's it called, HVC. So in, in a lot of songbirds, there's a part of the brain called HVC. And it, it increases in size in the, in the spring, and then it shrinks. And it controls singing. And it also controls song reception in females. Because mostly only males sing. You want to ask me what's HVC stand for? It used to stand for hyperstratum, ventrale, something else. And now it doesn't stand for that because they've changed the names. It just stands for HVC. Hyperstratum, ventrale. Kurt. I don't know. I need something. I don't know what the C stands for. Can't remember. So the same thing happens there. That's why these guys went and looked for this. All right. Wait. Cowbirds? Of course, cowbirds. So, Sherry Jacobs and Gawley, you keep seeing the name Sherry showing up, you can get the idea that Dave Sherry was a pretty important guy looking at hippocampus and memory in different birds. Dave died, geez, earlier this year uh, in April of uh, ALS. Who cares? It's pretty shitty. So that's neither Sherry nor Jacobs nor Gollin. That is a brown-headed cowbird. There he is. Actually, that's a she. There she is. I assume. So cowbirds are nest parasites. And the females have to remember where the possible host nests are. And the males don't have to, because <laughs> as I said the other day, and I've said many times, in a lot of respects, what males are of a lot of species is just bags of sperm. That's all they're useful for. They, they, they have no other, you know, that is all they do. And in humans, it's lawn care and car maintenance. That's the other thing men do. So you probably know what's happening here. There's a brown-headed cowbird, female versus male, hippocampal volume. 
compare that to uh, red wing blackbird or the grackle, which are just, this is close, somewhat closely related to cowbird, this is a little further away. There's no hippocampal differences for those. So that'd be the same for like other bird parasites? Yeah, it would probably be the same in cuckoos too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know any data on cuckoos. Okay. Yeah, almost certainly. Cowbirds are kind of the champions of this, of, of uh, nest parasitism. Like there's one species of cowbird that parasitizes 271 different species. Uh, they're very good at it. That's, they've filled that niche. And it's actually pretty amazing because uh, a lot of these, there's a whole, you know, what, the question is why don't, why don't, the, why don't the, the hosts, why don't they just kill the young? Like, it's not theirs, just kill it. Um, there's a whole hypothesis out there called the Soprano hypothesis, and I'm not making that up, that's basically, if you kill that one, the cowbirds come along and they kill all your children. And they learn this. Oh, I killed one of those young that wasn't related to my kids once. So the idea is what happens is the cowbirds come along and go, you know, it'd be a real shame if something happened to this nice family right here. Real shame if something happened to them. And it literally is called the Soprano hypothesis. Yep. Couldn't it potentially just be challenging for the other birds to like, recognize Oh, no, 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 they can, they can tell. But even if the egg's been there the whole time while they... Yeah, you should you know, see the cowbird, cowbird youngs, cowbird uh, young are, they're more, they, 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 they mature more quickly than, than oh. any other of the things they parasitize. They're bigger, they're stronger, they muscle the other ones out, they have been known to take some of the young from out of a nest. That actually makes sense as well, though. Oh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, yeah, good. And it was, uh, it's like a three minute video, and it's like a woman, and she's like acting, and she kind of explains root parasitism. Right. I can send it. Yeah, yeah. I can like show the yeah, process. Yeah, like, it's cool. That's cool. No, uh, cowbirds are interesting animals because we have this, because the other thing is that typically we think of male spatial superiority, that's usually the way it is, but it isn't in this case. So what you could do, what if, what if you talk about shutting down their hippocampus, removing their hippocampus, what if we could just temporarily shut their hippocampus down? What if we could temporarily shut their hippocampus down? So what you do is you implant a steel loop in the bird's brain right in its hippocampus, and then you're able to, sh to cool it down very quickly, within about a minute, to the point where it won't work. So you can get it down around about freezing, you don't want to freeze the thing. Right, so we can take a look here. Right, let's see, is that gonna start? So there's the loop of metal. And that's the hippocampus of a cowbird. Oh, you see cooling? Watch. And that's in real time. So what you're doing here is you're actually shutting down part of the animal's brain. But the cool thing is, you let it cool back up, and it works again. How do they get it into the brain without damaging Very carefully. <laughs> it's not really, that's all it is. And mistakes are made. 
because you're now the bird is anesthetized. It's not like you're doing this. Just, let's see, how was that? You know, um, if you do it properly, and like I said, I mentioned the atlas for uh, rats. They're very precise. So you're told on this angle we go this deep, uh, and they use. I think this group actually may have made a Calvert atlas up, but. Usually a canary atlas is used, but it's, it's pretty much used. And yeah, uh, some get lost. It's, it's not ideal. Then again, when this animal's done this, uh, it's, you're not letting it back in the wild. It's got a thing hanging out of its head. Right? Okay, so they don't take it out after? No. So what this allows someone to do is to test male-female differences and see if, if we shut down hippocampus, what happens. And that's, uh, but not me, it's her. That's my daughter with that. That's my daughter's master's thesis. Hey, let's move on to my daughter's PhD thesis. This is why you have kids. It's to increase your citation count and give yourself material for classes. So cluster in is a pattern of activation. You, you seem to think it might be a, like an actual part of the brain, but it's not really. It's, it's a pattern of activation. Um, in the forebrain of songbirds that are also night migrators, You can tell if clustering has been activated by looking at immediate early gene expression. And the, thing, the, the, gene, the product that's produced is called zinc. And zinc is correlated with neural, with, with neural firing. We can't actually measure individual neural firing right now, but we can certainly take a look and say how much zinc is in there. Now, the birds are dead after you do this, obviously. You kill the animal, you take out its brain, etc. We know that zinc peaks in a, in a neuron about between 15 and 30 minutes after the neuron is fired. So what you're able to do at this point is see, has this area been in use recently? Okay. So we've got something that's correlated with neural firing. And that's tested with a various bunch of antibody assays that I frankly don't know. So I'm just going to say antibody assays. So let's take a look at a little bit of data and get a feel for this. So what we've got here, let me make sure I've got my notes here because I want to make sure that I talk about this properly. Okay, there's my notes. Pull that up. Whoops. Oh, that's not what I want to do. Sorry. So, what this paper here has found is that um, this is looking at one of these. Birds. These are zebra finches, or as they call them in the UK, zebra finches. 
there's cluster in there. So there's the pattern that we're talking about. You can see, this is a close-up picture of it. This is at nighttime. This is in the daytime. This is a migrant bird. This is a non-migrant bird. And this is when they are in migrating conditions. So this is around. This this would be in the fall or in the in, in the spring. I think this was done in the fall. See this part here is all lit up. Okay. Now what this one here shows, a couple of things. First of all, uh, let's see. So relative zinc, zinc expression in cluster N. Uh, let's see. Expression between cluster N and the brain subdivision uh, right next to cluster N are materials, blah, blah, blah. Uh, these are garden warblers during autumn migration in A. Uh, and this is where they're spending their time. And you see where they're, they're, they're going? They're going to fly south. Even when they're in a cage and birds are in, in, in the close to migration time, they will spend their time in the cage, either south part of the cage, or unless they're going north, they'll be in the north part of the cage. And there's an easy way to actually measure that. What you do is you put paper on the ground of the cage and just make it just a little, you know, a couple of millimeters above the surface of the cage. And the birds just step on it and they break the paper. So what you can see, what the sort of upshot of all this stuff, you want to read all these things, you can. But what's happening here is this shows that there is more zinc expression, which means there's more, was very recently more neural firing, if the birds had their eyes open and it was nighttime and they were not, you know, in a Faraday cage. In other words, they still had the um, Earth's magnetic field. What birds actually get, when we take a look at the projections from cluster N, they go to the visual part of the bird's brain. So that should tell you what, the, what these birds are getting. Probably, we don't know because we're not birds. We can't ask them. Well, we can ask them questions. We can't ask them this question, which is what do you actually see in front of you? What they're, the best guess is they're getting something kind of like a heads up display. And it's, the, the guess I always hear, and this is obviously completely a guess, is that there's like a little, almost like a little dot go that way, right? The other day I was watching the TV show Invasion on Apple TV Plus, which I like, I'm the only person who likes it in the world. Anyway, the, uh, the aliens, they were talking about what the aliens were doing, and they said, if you see those birds, that they're, they're, they keep going around in a circle. And, and the person said, you know, Birds navigate using, and I was like, this is great. I rewound it, I took a video of it, I sent it to my daughter. I said, you know, you might stop, save the world for aliens at some point in your career. So that'd be cool. So take a look, these are white throated sparrows. And this is, what do we have here? See this. So this is when they're in migratory restlessness, when they're sleeping or during the day. They're restless at night. Look at how much more gene expression there is if they're restless at night. It's about, what, about three times more. And sleeping or in the day is equal. So you can actually get a good look here. This is how much, this is gene expression 
you can actually, each dot is, is when zinc has been expressed. This is this, when they're restless at night, and then there's these two. This pattern of activation is there saying, this is how to fly home. Well, to, to home for the next six months or whatever. And that's M broad back again. And if that's a really nice F value. If you can start getting double digit F values, you're in shape. All right, so questions about that? Basically what I'm showing you is that my daughter's smart, but I'm also showing you <laughs> these neural mechanisms allow you, you might wonder like, how the hell do birds know how to get home? That's how, like to get to a different location. They detect the Earth's magnetic field. They basically have a GPS without having one. They don't need satellites. No, I should say that, in fact, um, most animals have a magnetic sense like that. We do. You just don't know, you don't have to use it. But you, are, you will be better than chance at telling me where north is in a completely dark room. And if I also disoriented you first, like if I put you in a dark, a completely dark room, but first I, uh, you know, made you dizzy or something. Spin your right round, baby, right round, like a record, baby. In fact, if anybody gets a reference to a song from when I was younger than you all, it's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, so if I do that, you'll be better than chance. You won't be as good as a bird, because they, they go, oh, oh, there's where I'm going. But you'll be better than chance. You're better than chance. It's pretty cool. So we, most of us probably do have a magnetic detection, but it's really important for a migratory bird. You don't want to get up there and go, well, where do you want to go? Anybody got a direction? We'll follow at any sense. You lead. Good. Does anyone know if there's, uh, like, is it specifically something about the Earth's magnetic field, or do other magnetic fields interfere with that? Yeah, they do. Uh, one of the things that uh, my daughter was actually going to do, she didn't do, what other people have done, is you get a really strong magnetic field generator next to the assembly. And they don't do it at all? No, they get very confused. Interesting. Oh, you put them in a Faraday cage. Yeah. So you, you take the if you know what Faraday cage is, it's, yeah. it's, it's got to be a certain distance apart. But you, if you take uh, any kind of ferrous metal, so like nickel, right. and you put the uh, bars of the cage closer together than the wavelength of, I don't know enough physics, it's all, it's all blurred to me. You know. I took physics in 1980, okay? It's a long effing time ago. I think you don't know, get Newton talked to us in class. But um, people have done that with something that she was actually going to do with those birds. They shouldn't do it. People have already done this. And they, cluster A doesn't even fire at all when they're in a third pitch. Oh, because there's no magnetic There's no magnetic field. Yeah, okay. But you probably could confuse them. Or you, I'm sorry. I know you can confuse them by the very strong magnetic source and it's yeah. just interference. Yeah. Yeah, they use it. That's not the only thing they use. They're clearly also using smell, yeah. um, they're using vision. A little bit. And vision's important. This is always the weird thing to me. Birds like can't see at night. They have like night vision goggles on. But this doesn't work if they have their eyes closed. It only works with their eyes open. So it's something they're seeing, 
But they can't just be seeing the Earth's magnetic field, but they kind of are. But why does it work, not work when their eyes are closed? Which is, you saw that the name Hampton there earlier, and Rob and I, Rob Hampton and I, we talked about this with Madeline once, and she had, we kept saying, what about this, what about this? And she kept saying, I don't think it's that, I don't think it's that, I don't think anybody knows, which is the right answer. They go juggle. Some conclusions about this material. Um, nervous systems control behavior. Evolution acts on behavior. But therefore, the evolution must act on the nervous system. One of the things that is interesting here is that everybody accepts this until you get to humans. <laughs> then people go, no, 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 evolution can't affect humans. That makes you a Nazi or something. People are great. Um, the food storing bird stuff, I mentioned it being elegant uh, and simple, and that's not just me saying, because I was involved in that, that I think that, maybe it's partially that, uh, but mostly it's because I think everybody out there would agree that the first time that people would put all this stuff together, you know, we talked about the camel stuff the other day, and looking at memory and cognition and life history and neuroscience, the first set of people that did that or the people looking at food storing birds, and partially that was because one of them was Cal Campbell. So the reason it's such a great story, both from a neuroscience angle, but also from a just purely behavioral angle and an evolutionary angle is, um, the people who were doing that, that work were already thinking like this. But half of them were psychologists, half of them were biologists, that kind of thing. So I think it's probably the best of those stories uh, that I told you about today, but I think the other ones all work. The cowbird stuff's ongoing. Uh, the cluster end stuff is, again, ongoing. Uh, and a lot of that stuff is being done in Canada, which is quite cool. We're very good at this stuff. We're very good at animal cognition, animal learning, and animal behavior. It's just something we're good at. I don't know why. It's not like there's something in the water. It just happens. It does. We're good at that. We're good at the other thing we're good at in psychology, we're really good in Canada at memory research. Right? Just human cognition. And it just happens because people are good at it, and other people want to go to work with those people, and they come to that same place. It's just the way it is. Questions about this material from today? Well, that was quick. When there were questions and everything. Okay, well, I guess we're done. Uh, I will see you all next time. Thanks, everybody. From the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand. Why you folks might hesitate to submit to our demand. But here's an FYI, you're all I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brains.
spend your whole life locked inside a mall Maybe that's okay for now But someday you'll be out of food and guns And you'll have to make the call I'm not surprised to see you haven't thought it through enough You never had the head for all that bigger picture stuff Tom, that's what I do And I plan on eating you slowly All we want to do is eat your brains We're not unreasonable I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to 
pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.